We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. I started out the week talking about the need for a map, and that without a map, our constitutional map, our nation and our culture is lost. The next couple days we talked about historical Christianity being important to that map. I've got a story today to tell you that ties a bow around all this, and going to share a secret with you. Michael Knowles of The Michael Knowles Show will be joining The Rebellion. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's show. Throughout the course of the week, we've talked about things that have been common to The Rebellion over the course of the last few months. I talked about the need for a constitutional map. And that without that map, we're lost. Without any map, a person is lost. If you don't have a map, an aerial view, if you will, if you can't see the forest for the trees, then you will be lost because you'll be fixated on the immediate. And sometimes that fixation on the immediate is not a sense of concern or a sense of fear. It's a sense of infatuation, of passion of appetite. You fixate on the thing before you. You want it and nothing else. And you don't care about the consequences of getting it. That's a summary of our culture today. We're fixated on the immediate. The Bible calls it sin. We're fixated on the sin before us. We want it. J.R.R. Tolkien called it the ring, the ring of power. We're fixated on that ring and you can't see the consequences of having it. You want the ring because you think it will help you avoid pain. You think of the story of Frodo. There were times where he actually did succumb to the temptation of using the ring to avoid what he thought was the catastrophe before his eyes. So he used the ring and he realized the evil of its power. Yes, he may have dodged the bullet at the time, but he realized that he would lose the war if he kept using the ring. Does this make sense to you? This fixation on the immediate. I want my safety. I want to be safe from the virus. So I'll fixate on the immediate of being safe rather than recognizing that the forest is full of goodness. You fixate on the tree and you ignore that there's a forest. You don't see the forest for the trees. Thus the subtitle of my book, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. The great lion Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. The great lion of education isn't safe, but it's good. And more specifically this week, the great lion of the church, the church with a capital C, isn't supposed to be safe. It never was supposed to be safe. When Jesus promised us that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, he wasn't saying that that battle would be safe, what he said was that in the end it would be good, that the church would never fail. It would never die. It would always be good because 
he would protect it. And that's why I spent time this week talking about the church, the church, what it really is. And I talked about this survey out by Barna where he's warning us the church, the church in the United States is rotting at its core. The church has embraced a false religion. He calls it a fake religion, fake Christianity, people making up their Christianity. This quote from Frank Turek, where basically people disagree with Jesus on everything. They disagree with him on sex. They disagree with him on the Bible. They disagree with him about heaven. They disagree with him about hell. They disagree with Jesus about the need for atonement, his atonement, his unusual, unique, singular, singular atonement. John Wesley, you must be singular or be damned. The way to hell has nothing singular in it. The way to heaven has singularity written all over it. You must be singular or be damned. The Christian faith is an exclusive faith. Faith. It's not an inclusive faith. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to include everyone. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He was singular. He was exclusive. The atonement is a singular, unique, one atonement, at one mint. Atonement. It's singular. The atonement for our sins is paid by Jesus Christ. He atoned for those. And like Frank Turk says, why would they call themselves Christians if they disagree with Jesus on all this stuff? My Piper paraphrase of Turek, please, please stop even, even calling yourself Christians if you don't believe in Christianity. This is absurd. Oh, and Barna calls it fake Christianity. And he tells us that Christianity in the United States has become a watered-down, feel-good, fake Christianity. It's the most popular worldview in the United States, he says. And he says that it is a Christianity that is rotten, rotten from the inside out. I'm going to summarize all this in today's show by going to some writings of Chuck Colson. <laughs> Frankly, I felt that Colson was a hero of our time, and I still believe that. God gave us very special people for our time. Billy Graham was one of those. We were blessed to have Billy Graham as he shared the simple gospel message to the world that if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of, forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That Jesus said he's the way, the way. One more time, the way, not one of the ways, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one would come to the Father but by him. Billy Graham shared the Bible. He shared the Bible. And then we have Chuck Colson, who was redeemed from the ring of power, the corruption of power. One of the most powerful men in the world, Richard Nixon, Nixon's hatchet man, who was redeemed 
through the atonement of Christ, he recognized that he too was a broken man. Colson was broken, broken by his sinful life. And what was that sin? His sin was power. He loved it. He craved it. And he thought that that power gave him some sort of special status as a human being. And in reading the writings of C.S. Lewis and in the testimony of others around him, he recognized that he too was sinful, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chuck Colson understood that finally and became born again. His first book was titled Born Again. Go read it. If you want to know why I keep saying over and over again on this show, you're not born that way. You can be born again. In fact, God demands it. Jesus demands it. You must be born again. That's what he told Nicodemus on the rooftop. That you cannot be part of the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Again, Jesus said these things. I'm not making them up. This isn't Everett Piper's opinion. This is the Bible. This is the gospel. These are the words of Christ. So if we're going to claim to be Christians, we've got to believe in Christianity. And who defines Christianity? Well, Jesus does. God's word does. His infallible, inerrant, authoritative word defines Christianity. And Jesus, through the church, especially his first church, if you will, the first century church, Jesus, through his church, lays down the definition of what it means to be a Christian. And Barna is saying, we've bastardized the whole thing. What we claim as Christianity today is nonsense. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism at best. Feel good, group hug Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the Christianity of Jesus. It's MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Well, let's take a break, acknowledge our sponsors. When we get back, I'll tie a bow around all of this. And like I said, I've got a special announcement. Next week, Michael Knowles of the Michael Knowles Show of The Daily Wire will join the Rebellion for two episodes, two successive shows, to discuss his new book, Speechless. You'll be fascinated by this. And I've got a special third episode, a short one, if you will, for all of you who subscribe to The Rebellion. Nobody else will be able to hear it, but if you subscribe to The Rebellion, you'll be able to listen to the third episode where I ask Michael Knowles about his predictions for 2022 and the 2024 elections. So stay tuned to hear about Speechless, Michael Knowles' best-selling book right now. In fact, I joke with him in the upcoming episode where I say, you know, I'm thrilled that Regnery chose to publish my book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe But It's Good, at the very same time, the very same week, I think it was the very same day as Michael Knowles' book, Speechless, And for about five days, I was competing with him. We were exchanging back and forth as bestseller in that category. Well, he's crushed me now. 
<laughs> Unless all of you listening go out and buy five more copies of Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. And Michael Knowles has crushed me. So be prepared. Stay tuned for Michael Knowles to join us in the next two episodes. And three, if you're a subscriber to The Rebellion at patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. That's patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. I'm Dr. Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. Again, I'm very excited to have Michael Knowles join us. He's a brilliant, brilliant uh, commentator. He has a exceptional critique of culture in his commentary on The Michael Knowles Show. If you don't listen to him, if you don't subscribe to The Daily Wire, you must Again, Michael Knowles is part of that team. Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Andrew Clavin, Michael Knowles. The list goes on. Uh, I get a lot of my news from them. My wife listens to them almost every day in their podcasts. And having Michael Knowles on the show, show for the amount of time he has given us is a real blessing. You'll be very, very much encouraged. And I know you'll run out and buy his book speechless immediately after listening to him on the show. That's coming up in the next two episodes. And as I said, three, if you subscribe to The Rebellion, that's patreon.com. I should go back and say, Dr. Everett Piper, that's uh, at patreon.com. D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. All right. Um, Let's wrap this up by going back to This poll by George Barna. Remember I talked about it yesterday. The American Church has fallen. Shocking poll shows fake Christianity has supplanted the biblical worldview. And we should care about that. Even if you're not a Christian, you should care about that. Even if you're Bill Maher, you should care about that. In in his own way, Bill Maher has said he cares about that by sharing with us what I told you in his, oh, it's been several years ago, where he actually said on his show he'd much rather live next to a fundamentalist Christian than he would a radical Muslim. And he's not trying to be xenophobic or anything like that. And please stop if that's where you're going. Oh, you're xenophobic because you just said something bad about Islam. No, no, I'm saying that Worldviews have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And even Bill Maher sees the consequence of two worldviews that he disagrees with. Bill Maher is a radical atheist. He mocks religion of any kind. He's relentless, quite frankly, in mocking Christians. For example, he would mock me for believing the story of Jesus, for believing in angels and resurrection from the dead and people actually walking on water and have you ever seen anybody actually walk over and spit in the dirt and make mud and put it on a guy's eyes and all of a sudden the blind man sees you actually believe all these fairy tales you believe that stuff in the old testament oh my land that there was a flood and noah actually put animals on the ark and that you had talking donkeys and that you oh my land in the story of Jonah, do you believe that he was actually swallowed by a big fish and he lived to tell about it? How about the parting of the Red Sea? You believe that nonsense? Well, Bill Maher would mock all of it. But he does say this, and by the way, I do believe that. I do believe that those stories are true. 
I do believe in the historicity, excuse me, the historical reality, the historicity of the Bible. I believe that there are some things in the Bible that are poetry and parables. I believe that there are some things in the Bible that are written that way. But as I've said before, I am a literalist when it comes to Scripture. Well, what do you mean by that? You believe that it's literally true in every word? Yes, but you have to define what literal means. Literal literature. I consider the Bible to be true in all that it says. But it's very clear. It's very clear that there are some aspects of the Bible that are poetry. There are some aspects of the Bible that are written and spoken as parable. There are descriptive passages, and there are prescriptive passages, and there are proscriptive passages. You have to read the Bible as it's written. That means you read it literally, as literature. And in the Song of Solomon, for example, the poetry should be interpreted as poetry. Come on, people. And that doesn't mean that I don't consider the Bible to be true. In fact, I can't read it as true if I don't recognize that a lot of Song of Solomon is poetry. And likewise, there are poetic passages of the Psalms, and you read them accordingly. You read the Bible as literature because that's the way it was written, and I am a literalist. When Jesus talks about the prodigal son, I recognize that that's a parable that he's telling. There may not have been a literal person that he's referring to there, but there is a literal situation that he's referring to and a literal truth that he's sharing with us when he shares that parable. Do you get my point? There are parables, there are prose, there's prophecy. There's descriptive literature and there's prescriptive literature. A lot of people get all hung up on the, on the wars of the Old Testament, the violence of the Old Testament, as if God is prescribing those things. But if you go back and read it, 99% of your concerns go away if you just recognize that that is describing historical events. God isn't endorsing the fact, for example, that Solomon had five, I can't remember now, a thousand concubines. I think it was more than that. But Solomon had all of these wives, all of these concubines. Is that what God is telling us to do? Is he prescribing that all of us should live the same way. No, God isn't prescribing that. He's describing that. And we see the consequences of engaging in that lifestyle. It's never good. The Old Testament patriarchs, likewise, it's never good when they break the moral law of God. You know, you see the consequences of Jacob's family, for example, which resulted in the 12 tribes of Israel, but you see the dysfunction of that family because of Jacob's marital life. The fact that he had more than one wife didn't end well. It didn't work out well because the conflict that was endemic within his own family. I mean, the brothers hated Joseph so much that they tried to kill him. It was attempted murder. That didn't work, so they sold him as a slave. Not the best example of family values, right? 
Well, that's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. Okay, I've spent a lot of time on that. But that's probably a good thing. The point is, Christianity is historically true. Christianity gives us a historical accurate view of the world. And Christianity has a factual basis. And the factual basis of Christianity is defined by Jesus. You have to go back to the words of Christ. And if you disagree with his instructions, with his words, with his parables, with his prose, with his description of life, as well as his prescription and proscriptions, then you can't call yourself a Christian. You can't just make it up as you go. And Barna tells us, Barna tells us in his research that the most popular worldview in the United States today is a watered-down, feel-good, fake Christianity. He tells us that his poll shows that 38% of, uh, 38% of adults hold such a view. They hold such a view because they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They don't believe in the historicity of the Bible. They don't believe in the factual, prescriptive, and descriptive words of Jesus Christ. They just want to have some sense of morality. They want to have the sense of therapeutic, uh, I'm okay, let's just talk it out. Let's get some counseling and talk it out. Uh, there's a God out there, but we're not going to really think that he's involved in our lives now, do you? Uh, Barna tells us that this fake Christianity, this moralistic therapeutic deism is the religion of our day. He says American Christians who have adopted this philosophy have borrowed heavily from the modern secular world, which elevates personal definitions of right and wrong above any objective standard of truth, like the Bible. That's what Barna's research shows. He says, according to the study, little more than half of Americans who describe the Bible as a good source would, would, excuse me, little more than half of Americans would describe the Bible as a good source of moral truth. So half of Americans don't believe the Bible is a good source of moral truth? Well, what is the source of moral truth? What is their map? What map are they going to use to navigate life if the Bible isn't a good source of moral truth? What map will that be? Well, it's obvious that map is the individual, whatever you think. And it's chaos, chaos to think that you and I can come up with our own map. It never works. History shows us that over and over again. Mao had a map. Robespierre had a map. Chavez and Mussolini and Hitler all had maps, and those maps were whatever they came up with in their own mind. They fixated on the tree, their desire, their ring of power. That was their map. And it didn't end well for millions of people. Without that aerial view, without that drone view of life, without the Bible as that overview, the highest of all views where you can see everything, we're going to be lost. And millions of people always die. Moralistic therapeutic deism distorts the God of the Bible in an attempt to make him bless all the dissipations and vanities of the modern world. That's from the survey. It's one of those models that says, and there are a number of worldviews that say this, 
you got to live in the moment. This is all you've got, and you've got to make the most of it. George Barna. He goes on and says this, It makes sense that Christians who embrace moralistic therapeutic deism are hesitant to criticize the culture. How can anyone pass judgment if everyone's just trying to be happy? Don't worry, be happy. The only sin is getting in the way of someone else's sin, someone else's personal truth. And that's the truth. But it's always self-refuting. I've talked about this a thousand times. If you say it's true that there is no truth, you just (laughs) refuted your own claim. It's self-contradictory. You can't sit around and say, it's a sin to call someone else's behavior a sin. If you're calling someone else's behavior a sin, then you're a sinner. Well, you just called my sin a sin, but you're saying it's a sin to call someone else's sin sin. It's self-refuting. You can't sit around and say, I hate hateful people, or I'm sure that nothing is sure. You can't sit around and say, well, we know that really nothing can be known, so let's not act like we know anything, really. It's self-refuting. It makes no sense. I've said it a thousand times on this show. It's hilarious if it isn't so sad. If it weren't so sad, this would be a joke. This would be a joke. It would be like laughing at your dog while he chases his tail, thinking that he's going to accomplish anything. But smart people apparently think this makes sense. Is there any greater evidence that the Bible again is true when we're told that God's <laughs> God laughs at the wisdom of man? Our wisdom is nothing but foolishness. Again, from this article, without a firm foundation in the truth, increasing numbers of Christians are ill-prepared to fight the moral battles being waged in this country. And that's why so many are siding with groups like Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ movement. They'll just listen to the loudest voice on either side and enter the screaming woke mob, the rule of the gang. Whoever screams the loudest, cries the loudest, my feelings have been hurt. Oh, my feelings have been hurt. It's all about me. It's all about my quest for power. Give me more power and the world will be good. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What nonsense. Chuck Colson addresses this. One of the last books he wrote was The Faith, where he said, you know, I've come to realize that I've got to define Christianity again for people because they've forgotten it. We'll talk about Colson's book in subsequent shows. But in the next show, we've got Michael Knowles on. He'll cover a lot of this stuff in his book, Speechless. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Remember that in times of universal deceit, and these are those times, the only rebellion left, the only way to tackle this stuff is with truth. Truth is the only rebellion left. 